go ahead and start with prayer, and then we can just dive right in. Sound good? Thank you, Lord, for a beautiful day. We know folks are still on their way. We'll be filtering in for a little while, but uh, we pray that you'll help us make good use of our time and uh, help us as we endeavor to glean wisdom and insight from the Westminster Divines and the Westminster Confession of Faith. In Christ's name, amen. All right, like I noted, I'm going to... I'm beginning a uh, series uh, of, you know, Sunday school classes. I guess that's what we call this, or the Bible study hour, whatever we call it, on uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. I've got my handy uh, folder with the original, uh, this is not actually the original copy, but the <laughs> of the uh, front piece for the very first edition, uh, and it's a uh, well, well uh, sort of framed or phrased, it says, uh, the humble advice, interesting, the humble advice of the Assembly of Divines, now by authority of Parliament, uh, sitting at Westminster, concerning the confession of faith, with quotations and text of Scripture annexed, uh, presented by them lately to both Houses of Parliament, printed at London, and reprinted at Edinburgh, by Evan Tyrus. Printer of King's Most Excellent, or Printer of the King's Most Excellent Majesty, 1647. So the uh, the assembly. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a copy uh, of the Confession of Faith outside of a hymnal, this is a nice one. This is uh, published by Banner Creek Trust. You can pick it up. That's a beautiful Naga hide cover. You know the the the, the great Naga. Herds of Naga, just <laughs> wandering the wilderness, <laughs> giving in their lives for a cover. I don't know what is a Naga, <laughs> but it uh, it gives a this uh, begins. It's got a nice introduction by uh, Sin Fer uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, and he wrote this back in 2012, and uh, gives us a, a little overview in here of the assembly. So it uh, convened at Henry VII Chapel at Westminster July 1st, 1643. That's, uh, I believe, 378 years ago. You think about that. Pretty, uh, pretty remarkable that uh, it had the staying power it's had. Um, shortly after the inauguration, uh, the assembly uh, initially set out to revise the 39 articles of the Church of England. Are you familiar with the 39 articles? 39 articles are basically an English-speaking world, kind of the baseline when it comes to Protestant uh, affirmations of faith. Uh, you know, Methodist churches, uh, Episcopal churches, uh, many many churches like uh, we find in the Holiness Movement and even in Pentecostalism draw on the 39 articles. So uh, it wouldn't be uh, at all sort of unusual to say, okay, why don't you start with this? And that's how it began. So it was initially intended to be a, re a revision, and it was intended to bring the Church of England into closer accord with the churches on the continent, you know, Dutch, and also uh, the folks up north in Scotland. Then in September, not long after they, they began, there was a solemn league of covenant between England and Scotland, and at this point, uh, the Scots were brought in. The, Scot the Scots came in uh, kind of as a group to oversee what was going on, kind of a kind of uh, in an advisory capacity. But also, uh, because of their relationship to to England, they almost kind of had veto power over what was done. And so, consequently, because they didn't just like blend in and become part of the larger assembly and but had kind of their own block, they uh, had a lot more power in the proceedings. And uh, this is. Uh, I had a, a strong influence in how the whole process unfolded. I think there were 120 divines and 30 laymen initially gathered before the Scots were brought in. And uh, the divines uh, were a mixture of people, uh, guys who were uh, academics, you know, scholars in the languages and so forth of the, of the scriptures, but also pastors. There were a lot of working pastors. And uh, so it was, uh, and then the uh, there was a pretty uh, well-documented 
um, uh, process that they followed. So we know, you know, a lot about who spoke when and what they debated and that kind of thing in the different parties. And there was a, a, a range of convictions related to church government. So you had Episcopalians, basically bishops, who uh, believed that the Church of England, as it followed the, epis you know, the, the Episcopal pattern, was, was actually doing the right thing. You had Presbyterians, of course, who were the really the right people, <laughs> who did things biblically. But anyway, uh, it, you know, you had the uh, Episcopalians, obviously uh, the form of government that we enjoy, and then congregations and other independents. So it wasn't just Episcopalians, or I'm sorry, just the Presbyterians, as I think sometimes people assume. Well, the Anglicans were the Church of England, so they're more or less, um, you know, with King Henry VIII, when he said we're done with Catholic Church, the Church of England was established, and he was the head of the church. So within the Church of England, the sitting monarch was the head of the church, uh, something that was kind of unusual if you think about, particularly if you think about Henry. Well, um, uh, interesting, I've never heard that
Anyway, now let's let's think a little bit about uh, why confessions. Why do we have confessions? You know, a lot of folks. I mean, you know, the people I knew when I was first converted would say, "This is the only confession I need: the Bible." Now, why why would uh, you need something apart from the Bible? Or what what gives you a reason for saying, "Okay, yeah, the Bible definitely is our standard, but confession is a good thing." Any thoughts? One thing, it's really long. <laughs> there's a lot in here. And uh, there's a range of opinions that people have about various things, convictions about various doctrines and so forth. And so in order to establish a stronger measure or a str stronger degree of, of unity, doctrinal unity within a communion, we, we resort to confession. Um, now, a confession and, you know, which we have with the uh, creed, that's an interesting thing to distinguish. Have you ever thought about the relationship between those? So, for example, in the back of our hymnal, we've got, you know, two very important creeds, the Apostles' Creed and then the, the Nicene Creed, and those come before the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. The confession begins on page 847 in the back. But right before that, we have the Apostles' Creed, and uh, there at the bottom you see that you know, the, the, the this is explained. It's a concise summary of the, the teachings of the apostles. Um, then you have the Nicene Creed, which is a very strong defense of the uh, divinity of Christ. Uh, this is uh, something that is a matter of great controversy because of the Arian heresy. But then we have the, the uh, Westminster Assembly of Divines. Now this isn't uh, the only confession out there, you know. We, you know, we have Heidelberg and others within the Reform world, but there are others even beyond those. And uh, what they, what, what we have is a summary of doctrine uh, that's internally consistent and intended to be helpful as a guide for devotional life, but also the ministry and work of the church. So, you know, I, I, I do think it's a great thing to have a little. You know, copy of it you can carry around. Smaller than me. Where do you get these? You can get these uh, online, um, but I would recommend if you're going online to go to uh, Banner of Truth Trust. That's where this. Well, I, I don't. I don't have a computer. I don't know that. Well, there are people here who do, okay. and I recommend that you ask some for some help. Okay. And it'd be good to have. Uh, as I said. Uh, 
side of your, your uh, chest or anything. And, uh, and it's the same, you know, thing that you have in the hymnal. So anyway, uh, what we have, as I noted, is a confession that is systematic. That's another thing about the confession is it's systematic. It takes us through in a logical progression uh, through a series of important biblical doctrines and in the, in the, in there's an attempt to summarize. One of the things we find, particularly in the Westminster Confession, is that there's a, there's a, there are a lot of complex sentences. And that's because they're trying to make sure they cover all the ground. You know, so you have comma, statement, comma, statement, comma, statement, comma, statement. I'm, and that's like a short sentence. <laughs> because it, and then, and then uh, what you get, too, when you have um, a, uh, you know, a, you've got the proof text already there. So, you know, many times you'll find that. So this is, you can find this on the Internet. This is a PDF. And you can find... Um, you know, like a, like a, a statement, a paragraph, and then like the rest of the page, two-thirds of the page, is all footnotes. Footnotes being the scriptures that are in the minds of the framers of the confession when they wrote these statements. So, any any other thoughts about this? Yeah, Christopher. A few, few thoughts that spring to mind is we're talking about systematic theology. Yep. I was wondering if you could comment on when did systematic theology come onto the scene? Um, I'm thinking of Calvin's Institute and his commentaries. He developed his Institute right. kind of side by side with his commentaries. Um, is this one of the earlier, obviously it's one of the earlier comprehensive reformed right. confessions, but there was the Augsburg and things before that. So yeah. were there confessions before the Reformation? You know, I, I uh, wish I knew I, you know, with that seems like there are two things you're asking there. One is about systematics, and the other is, you know, the history of confessions. I do think that confessions, as we know them now, do uh, come into prominence at the same time as the printing press uh, is, you know. So, like, when you think about the creeds, the, the, the creeds were designed to, me to be memorized. So they were like uh, sort of shorthand versions of the, of the faith that were intended to help you sniff out heresy. And because people didn't have printing presses, everything was written out by hand. That meant, generally speaking, only churches, monasteries, uh, wealthy families actually owned physical copies of the scripture. Uh, until the printing press, you literally have a, a Bible chained to your pulpit because people would steal it. Um, so, and, and, and they were crafted very artfully, meticulously. You can actually buy reliefs from, you know, hand-copied pages of Scripture uh, to a lot of auction sites in, in Europe. Uh, I put bids in and lost every time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it was great. You know, it's great to think about, wow, I can get a handwritten, you know, vellum sheet from the you know, 13th century. think about how long it would take to produce this by hand and without you know any of the you know sort of you know, tools that we have today that would make it easier or easier and control pick pens and you know that kind of thing quills and so forth. Could you tell me when the Gutenberg Gutenberg started this? Yeah well I, I can't tell you the precise date but there we have these little things called smartphones. So if somebody wants to look up when the Gutenberg Bible was first printed, that would, that would be great. Yep. So I was just going to comment on what Christopher's question and, and what you said earlier. What's the difference between a creed and a confession? Obviously, confession is longer. A creed is something I think all of us can believe in. All of us can confess that it's Catholic right. in nature. But creeds are more denominational. Robert Shaw is a good guy. I like him. Uh, points to so many wonderful. Do good. Uh, what do they call it? Analysis. Study of the confession. What do you call that? Commentary of the confession. 
Robert Shaw, he says he made one statement that was a lot of statements are really good at the beginning of the Schedule 4 final report, typical of the beginning, but he said it's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to bring us those scriptures. It's a responsibility of us all to interpret them. So that's your job, that's our job. Thankfully, we have men that have gone before us who
the knowledge and the sword would go together. And uh, in the modern world, the term, the term we use is epistemology. So there are, there's a lot of debate in the larger sort of European community about what are the standards, what are the things that we should appeal to, how do we go about acquiring knowledge, you know, what's the limit of, of our knowledge, uh, you know, how does knowledge relate to, you know, sort of what you m can make people do or permit people to do, these sorts of things. So, you know, like in any, any government, any state, there are certain things that the government uh, will say, you just can't do that. In fact, if you do it, we'll lock you up or we might even kill you. <laughs> you know, it, there, there are limits to, to what the, you know, you're free to do uh, in any political environment. The question at that point is, is, who gave you the authority to administer these rules and to you know, administer these punishments and so forth? Same thing works in the church. You know, where, do, where does the authority of elders come from? Or what are they appealing to? Um, and what we have with uh, Scripture is the, uh, the testament of the apostles and what they have passed down to us. And so anyway, uh, that's what this is getting into. Any, any thoughts before we jump into the first? Yep. Yeah. yeah, so sort of dealing with the Westminster Divine Meeting in 1847, by the beginning of Charles I on the throne. And so if we start from our, our knowledge base of, of revealed scripture, it puts an emphasis on the, the horns of the dilemma, right? Do I claim divine right like my father did? Yep. And if he does, he has to claim that he has word Yeah, underneath this is the whole question, who's head of the church? <laughs> and uh, so by going to scripture, pretty radical statement in a way uh, that the king is not the, uh, the, the uh, highest authority in the church, scripture is. Okay, well, let's jump into this first paragraph. This is fascinating. It's probably going to take us a couple of weeks to get through this chapter. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence, that's what I was getting at with the complex sentences, um, do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men in unexcused, uh, unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary to salvation. Now there's a lot packed in there. A lot packed in there. So basically what it's saying is scripture reveals to us, or nature reveals to us, I should say, that we don't, we don't have any excuse. But, uh, even though that's the case, nature doesn't give us enough information for hope, or reason for hope. Because salvation is something that uh, is not clear through nature, how salvation is to be accomplished. So, it's like a kid who's messed up his bedroom, you know, a little guy. He can make the mess, but he can't clean it up. <laughs> that kind of kind of situation. So now, when we when we think about the light of nature and the works of creation and providence, let's stop there because there's a lot to work with uh, here. So, what uh, are the divines referring to? And by the way, they've got lots of scripture to back up this statement about nature. Any thoughts? So, what are the things that we can we can say about God? about ourselves just by looking at the world. Okay, now the question is, can we get to Jesus by the light of nature? That's a, I think that's a, let's stop right there now. So can we get to Jesus by the light of nature? example, uh, if the creation and the creator are utterly distinct, in other words, if God transcends the created things that he's made, and they're not, you know, things that can be blended together or confused in some way, then how was creation accomplished? 
it's kind of the means by which it proves. One of the things we see in Scripture is that all things came into being through Christ. All things were made by Him, for Him, and in Him all things hold together. We see that in Colossians and Ephesians. But uh, there are there are things that maybe uh, if we delve into these matters and think about them deeply, raise questions for us that later Revelation really addresses, but there are certain things that we are told explicitly uh, in Scripture uh, about this very matter. So like Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, because that which uh, may be known about God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it to them, unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power uh, and Godhead so that they are without excuse, meaning human beings. Now let's think about this. So it's through the physical world that we can perceive the invisible realities that sustain God. So how does that even work? <laughs> you know, I think that there's a, a, a kind of uh, empirical test that we can conduct, and that is just by surveying the peoples of the world, different cultures. Do we, do we see evidence of religious uh, sort of practice everywhere around the world? And the answer is yes. Now, there are a range of, you know, things that people believe, but this, this idea that there is an unseen world that can be accessed or at least perceived in some way through the seen world is something that we can establish just by observation. Look here, look here, look here. Hittites did it, the Amazon people in the Amazon did it, people in you know Nairobi do it, you know this kind of thing. Uh, so there's that, but there's also a something here which is uh, referred to as the light of nature, and I'd like to think a little bit about that. When we refer to the light of nature, what are we referring to? Reason. Okay. I think there's a lot to say. Covered all the bases. Let's think a little bit about this uh, and kind of uh, make a distinction between kinds of knowing. So when we refer to knowledge, uh, we can think about it in different ways. And one of the ways we see in the Old Testament is that knowing uh, is not simply an abstract sort of a, a set of uh, sort of formulae that you're working through to sort of understand something. You actually have a kind of more uh, relational relate, you know, connection. Yeah, Neil. No, I didn't interrupt. I was just what I, I mean, I think it's You were saying amen. Yeah, the, 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 the thing that's not 
uh, I think, kind of uh, dealt with yet is the nature of the insufficiency. So I think that when we think about sufficiency, there's the moral question of how do you address uh, a God you, whom you've already offended? You know, how do you how do you placate that God? How do you encounter that God? That's stuff that has very think I think a very strong connection to Revelation. You know, the things that God has done, reaching out to us in history. But I think this whole matter of the light of nature, you know. Uh, when it comes to knowing, I guess that's what I was getting at. There's a kind of knowing which, which uh, doesn't uh, really connect to my sort of core of who I am, you know. Um, and then there's a kind of knowing that does. And I think that one of the things that comes through the confession and obviously bef- uh, in Scripture is that there, there is this distinction that needs to be uh, overcome. So, you know, like when James refers to you believe in God, well, good for you, the demons do as well, you know. He's, he's getting at this kind of thing. There's this distinction between a knowing in the sense of I know David, and David would actually recognize me if I were to call him, and knowing, say, you know, LeBron James, and if I tried to call him, <laughs> you're like, who are you? How did you get my number? <laughs> that kind of thing. So I, I think that that's, that's one of the things that's at work here. But um, the things that they enumerate here, goodness, wisdom, and power, these are things that the light of nature m- make clear to us. God is good, God is wise, and God is powerful. And for these reasons, we have no excuse. And the... And and what he's, what, you know, obviously Paul is getting at is when we recognize the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, we ought to worship God, right? That's the appropriate response kind of in the framework of knowing him as God. So, uh, but, you know, that next statement following the semicolon, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary to sal- unto salvation. So what is, you know, what is needful to know when it comes to salvation? What do we need to know? Christ? Yep. So now we're referring to an historic event and a person who's been, you know, revealed to us in history. Like when we think about creation, we're thinking about, you know, the order of things. We're thinking about, wow, this is big who's ever behind this is really powerful and smart. <laughs> so these are inferences that we draw from what we observe in the created order. But based on that, there's nothing that we would sort of necessarily conclude about God's mercy or what's been done for us uh, by God to uh, make our salvation possible. You see what I'm getting at? So that what we're talking about is a kind of distinction between things. There's a kind of, there's, there's natural revelation, which is all around us all the time. And then there's special revelation, or what we could say is a revelation in history, in which very important information has been provided to us that we wouldn't have been able to acquire on our own any other way. God loves us. You know, God made provision for our sin by sending Christ to die for us and be raised for us. Glad for it. <laughs> There'd be uh, a whole process of church discipline that would uh, get into. <laughs>
Psalm 19 is a good, I think, a good place to go. I think they're referring to this. It's interesting about Westminster. Sometimes they are quoting Paul. Here they're quoting Paul. Right. Without excuse. Right. <laughs> Paul said that. But it just, it's difficult for me to answer that question just by saying, unless, you know, how do, how do they hear, how would they know unless someone sends them? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's your answer now. Live with it. I have difficulty with that. Because you're a sensitive guy. Thanks, and I love you too. <laughs> You're a handsome man. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> and, but, you know, the very next passage that they quote here, or at least is provided in this version of the uh, confession, is Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. So the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork, day to day utter speech, and night to night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath uh, he set a tabernacle for the sun. But I, the, the, the larger framework is that there is there's something that we're being told through creation. And there's something that we can't get just through creation. There's some important information that's not. Now, you, 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 know, you raise some, some questions that a lot of people raise. What about people who never hear? What about, you know, infants who die? You know, these are all, I think, legitimate questions. But we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> but this is, this is sort of the larger framework for thinking about this. Um, therefore, it please, this is back to the confession, still in, in paragraph one. This may take us three weeks to get through this, this, this chapter. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself. Okay, so there is the issue, re revelation. And to declare that his will unto the church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh. So now they're getting into a very pastoral mode. And the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. So now, now this introduces a whole new kind of uh, thing to think about or a new matter to think about, and that's the status of a book. You know, we have a, you know, a book, a collection of writings that uh, serve as a canon for us. Now a canon is a, is a measuring uh, sort of rod, it's a rule, so the canon of scripture, we're when we refer to the canon of scripture, we're referring to that, that rule that uh, orders the church. But uh, there's a process of canonization and how you know, the books is, you know, were recognized as being authoritative. And we'll get into that in the very next part of this. But uh, what we have at this point is, and this ties together, this is an important thing to tie, tie together, because creation doesn't tell us everything we need to know. Some things were revealed to us in history and the record of those things needs to be preserved because if it's not, we don't know it anymore. That's really fundamental because, you know, you don't walk outside, and, you know, and say, wow, look, you know, I, I see evidence for the resurrection, you know. Uh, what we have is an account by those who saw the risen Christ. Their words are recorded. Their teachings that 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 were, you know, given and inspired as a result of that uh, were the gospel that were uh, as it was proclaimed. And then we obviously have the gospels themselves, the rec records of Christ's work and ministry and his death and resurrection. All those things. If we didn't have the scriptures we'd be in deep trouble. So the connection between revelation and scripture is really important. And that's what they're, they're s saying here. Any thoughts about that? Well, I'm glad that you, we've been a help. Glad we've been a help. Um, so, with those things in mind, 
Now, what's also being affirmed here is the closing of the canon, the very last uh, uh, series of statements, uh, which make the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being now ceased. So what's being referred to uh, when, when they address that or say that? Right. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, right. I'm not sure. I've not read the Celestine Prophecy. Oh, well, the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic gospel. Right, right. Yeah, there, uh, and this kind of gets us to the next matter, which is how the canon was identified. But uh, that's something to keep in mind because there are no shortage of people who, you know, get up and say, hey, got something new. Sure, agnostic means don't know. So gnosis is where we get the word know, and a in Greek means no, so no knowledge. Well, I never studied Greek, so I didn't Well, that's fine. Most folks don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I think she means was Gnostic. Oh, Gnostic. I people yeah. that think they have special knowledge. Yeah, now Gnosticism in the early you know, church was a, a pernicious problem. And it came out of uh, the east, meaning Persia and that re area of, of, the, of the Middle East. And uh, the idea, or sort of the, the framework within which Gnostics understood the world, is that the physical world that we live in, they believed, was not made by a good God, but by, 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 by kind of an incompetent uh, demiurge. So the reason why people die, get sick, you know, die in, you know, there are famines, these things like that, is that we had an incompetent creator of the physical world. And then there was a, there was a creator who made spiritual things, spiritual creatures, and then those spiritual creatures were trapped in the physical world. Our bodies are kind of like, think about it this way. When you were a kid, did you ever go out and catch fireflies with mayonnaise jars? Well, you can think of it like that. So the good God made us all to fly around and be happy and free. And then the, the, the wicked God caught us. <coughs> now you're trapped in your body. And now you're subject to death and all these terrible things. Now the only way out of the mayonnaise jar is knowledge. Knowledge, gnosis. And gnosis about yourself and your self-divinity. Now you can see this can be a real problem for Christians <laughs> at a number of levels. But... Uh, one of the things that, you know, we as Christians do affirm is that, you know, spiritual things are eternal, unseen things are eternal, and, and physical, visible things are temporal. So we do recognize a kind of hierarchy when it comes to our bodies and our spirits, but it's a big jump from that to saying that the God who made our bodies is a, is a monster and the God who made our spirits is the true God. And that's what Gnosticism maintains. Gnosticism has many different manifestations, and we still deal with it today. There are, there are things that I hear, you know, on occasion where I'm saying, that's Gnostic, you know, has a kind of Gnostic feel to it or sound to it. Maybe Gnosticism light, but it's still Gnostic. So we have to be on, on our guard against that kind of thinking. Um, anyway, other, yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, and we, we still deal with it. You know, I, you mentioned certain kinds of charismatic or Pentecostal uh, teaching. But uh, even like the Mormons, 
Mormonism uh, operates on this mode to this very day. So the chief prophet uh, can pronounce new revelation at any given time. Uh, a lot of folks who are kind of on the outside of Mormonism don't know that, but that's, that's how it works. So, you know, you've got kind of this apostolic authority that um, is kind of on steroids within Mormonism. Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, I don't know enough about them, but they are not, uh, you know, kind of uh, open to new revelation in the sense that I think we're talking about here. They more got they more have a peculiar way of interpreting scripture, and then they also have a kind of well adulterated copy. They their their, their version of the scriptures is kind of uh, edited, redacted. Well, I'm, I'll be praying for it. I didn't know that. That's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not looking at any. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't think you would. But still, you know, something you have to deal with. Uh, so anyway, the, the canon of Scripture is closed. But what constitutes the canon? What's what's included? We're not going to really get into this very deeply because we've only got about five minutes left. But you, you, you have here... Next paragraph, under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. And then we have a list, and this ought to look very familiar, because this is the, this is the list we use. <laughs> this is a, an, an account of, and then even the ordering uh, is familiar to us. Now, um, these uh, are affirmed as being given by inspiration of God to be a rule of faith and life, which is you know, you know, stating that they're a canon. Um, now, the process by which uh, the different books that we affirm as being authoritative were recognized as such is something worth thinking a little bit about anyway. So I'll spend a little bit of time with that to kind of wrap things up. When it comes to the Old Testament, largely we're working with uh, what the Jews have handed down to us and have recognized themselves as being authoritative. Uh, there is uh, obviously the Apocrypha, uh, but largely in uh, Jewish thinking, the Apocrypha has a kind of secondary status in the way they look at Scripture. And so many of the early Reformers just said, this is what they recognize, we, rec we agree. So uh, now those aren't included here, and the very next paragraph gets into the status of the Apocrypha from our perspective. But you'll find that, say, some Catholic versions of the Bible, or Catholic versions of the Bible, include the, the Apocrypha. And um, so when the Reformers uh, decided to affirm the uh, body of Scripture that, that Jews recognized, I think that's that's the justification for why, you know, the Old Testament is understood to contain the scripture or the scriptures that it does. Now, the way things are ordered uh, is different. Um, one of the things that you'll see here is a very familiar, uh, you know, list and, and ordering of these of these books. But when you say look at a Jewish Tanakh, uh, their version of the, you know of the of the writings you'll see things divided up a bit differently. Now, the first five books are recognized as Torah, as Torah, and uh, those come at the beginning for them as well as for us. But for them, they have you know what they refer to as the prophets and the writings. Uh, we think in terms of more like the histories. They're all, they're all contained here. They're just sort of grouped differently. So when you pick up a Jewish um, edition of the Old Testament, of course, they don't refer to it as the Old Testament, uh, you'll see you know, that, you know, be a little bit confusing to you, but it's all there. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, <coughs> the, uh, the churches uh, recognized those scriptures that were, that were passed around and were in use uh, very broadly and were recognized as being connected to an, ap an apostle. <coughs> so, those are two very important criteria that the early church fathers used to, de to decide to, 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 to say uh, 
okay, the Gospel of Thomas is not meeting the standard, but, you know, the Gospel according to Matthew does. Now, are you familiar with the Gospel according to Thomas? It's just one example. There are many other examples out there. This can be a little bit dis disconcerting to folks if they've never been introduced to this sort of, sort of kind of chaos of the, <laughs> the first few centuries in the Christian church. But the, the Gospel of Thomas uh, is very clearly a, a, a presentation of the life of Christ through the, the theological understanding of Gnosticism. And there are little things that kind of clue you in, and there are odd things that you see that you say, wow, that doesn't seem to accord with what we read in, say, Mark or John or what have you. Uh, an example, uh, in the Gospel according to Thomas, if I remember correctly, there's a story of Jesus as a little boy, and he's making uh, pigeons out of uh, clay. And then just for entertainment, claps his hand and turns them into legging, living pigeons. Cute, you know, <laughs> kind of a fun story. But the early church fathers, you know, they'd look at that and they'd say, you know, uh, that's kind of weird. Um, I don't see how that really ties into the larger meaning and purpose of Christ's work. I don't see how that can be sort of harmonized with the things we know about Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, and then, you know, then there's the questions of, you know, origins. Where is this actually coming from? Is this from a center of Gnostic practice that actually was something that was important to them as they thought about these things? So that's the process by which they sorted a lot of this stuff out. If you read any Dan Brown and stuff like that, you end up with some strange statements about, you know, ancient books, he's, he's, he's working from, you know, books that were rejected. Why didn't they... Just, just a second, I want to get to Mac here. Yep, Mac. You give some ancient and uh, every often that uh, they're also tied to Gnostics. Is there any book in the New Testament that isn't connected back to the Gnostics? Um, there is uh, a secondary relationship in some cases, you know, for example, with Mark. You know, Mark uh, is attributed to John Mark, but it's understood that he's in the presence of apostles. And uh, that according to tradition, he's received what, what, is, what is reported. Particularly Peter. Mm -hmm. But what right. about Luke? Luke would be another example, and obviously he's in the presence of Paul. But uh, he's also very, very uh, transparent about his, uh, his approach. You know, he says, I did a lot of research. So, you know, Luke was a medical doctor, educated fellow, and did a lot of travel with Paul and uh, over the course apparently of his ministry with Paul uh, and the other apostles he was gathering information and ordering it putting it into you know uh, a, a format that's easy to present that kind of thing so his 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 is almost like a tech like a like a you know a paper like a term paper in college or something like that he's done his research he's put it all together and here you go There you go. <laughs> what did you learn about these things that are not Well, they uh, sent me to a place where they talk about that stuff. <laughs> they sent you there? <laughs> Who sent you there? <laughs> well, uh, different people. <laughs> but anyway, uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that you can, you can look into uh, to you know, understand the process of canonization. I think F.F. Bruce, if I remember right, uh, has a book on the canonization of scripture. Uh, and so the church has always been very transparent about this whole thing. This is not like some super secret thing that was worked up in some back room. This is all pretty well documented stuff. And, and the stuff that was rejected, when you have a chance to see it for yourself to say, wow, I'm glad they rejected that. That's really weird. Because it, it often really is. And uh, because within the sort of the milieu of the early church, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, in regards to, you know, immigration, the sort of the spread of different religions, uh, mystery religions, for example, uh, were a big deal in the first couple of centuries of the early church. And, and so, the, the, so Christians were working hard to try to discern what is genuine and what is not. That was a big concern for them. And they had a really, I think, admirable and rigorous process that they followed uh, to determine what is trustworthy and what should be rejected. 
and if you want to look into all of the details with regard to various books or whatever, it's the, the information is out there. Anyway, well, why don't we wrap it up? Uh, at, and uh, next time we will pick up on the Apocrypha. We'll be looking beginning at uh, paragraph number three. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, our confession. We do believe that you were at work in the minds and the hearts of those divines who labored uh, to per to give us this document. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to learn from it. Also remember that it's not Scripture. It, it's based on Scripture. And that there are some areas where we may have some good and legitimate questions about how to best understand Scripture in relationship to the confession. So help us to be generous as we think about these matters as well as faithful. In Christ's name, amen.